Father, thank you for the truth of the song that we've just sung. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Lord, we yearn for that. In eternity, for sure, but, but even now, Lord, we groan, um, burdened, heavy laden, a time of year that we all hope and intend to be a time of peace, a time of love, a time of slowing down, yet somehow it, it tends to get robbed. We tend to get distracted, busy, burdened, heavy laden, but Lord, you were born to set thy people free. So thank you that this morning as we come together and open up your word and learn more about who you are, to be reminded of who you are, to be reminded of what you've done, I pray that you would set us free this morning. And again tomorrow, and again the next day, and again the next day, because we are wholly dependent upon you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, good morning. How about those Christmas decorations? That's amazing. You know, we, we had a volunteer, people, makes me, makes me really happy. Thanks to our third and fifth grade teachers for bringing in our kids. And, uh, and then y'all, CBC team, thank y'all for coming to serve us. Um, deeply, deeply grateful. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. If you were not here last week, that caught you off surprise. Because usually, since August 7th, we have been, right, meticulously walking through um, the book of Acts. So here at Community Bible Church, if you're new with us, just to let you know a little bit about who we are, we want to make followers of Jesus with community and the Bible. Um, and the way that we preach the Bible is, is what we call it expositionally. So we want to preach through books of the Bible, which means we start in Acts chapter 1, and then we don't go to 2 until we're done with Acts chapter 1. And then we go to 3 after 2, and, and that's kind of what we're ab about here. However, for the season of Advent, Right, So last Sunday, which we lit the hope candle, this Sunday we light the peace candle, all the way up to our Christmas Eve service. You heard that? Okay, we're going to keep reiterating that. No Christmas Day, but Christmas Eve service. We'll be um, looking at the Christmas story. Specifically, how does the Christmas story provide hope? That's what we looked at last week. This week is how does the Christmas story provide peace? Okay, so we're going to be looking at peace um, in God's Word, and that's going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So, Without further ado, let's, let's read our text today, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read to the end of verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the last, the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment roll, uh, rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's Isaiah chapter 9. So just as we saw last week, this in the Christmas story. And, and truly what we have here is, is a, a pregnancy announcement. It's an announcement about a baby that's going to come into the world. Now, we have four kids. I think we've referenced this, eight, six, four, and two. And I remember being in North Africa. We were missionaries at the time. Being in North Africa and, and learning for the first time 
that Annie was pregnant with our oldest, with Josiah. He's eight. And just the, the sheer elation, right? The joy that we shared in the moment, learning that we're finally going to have that baby that we've been praying for and hoping for for so long is fulfilled. That was such a joyous time for us as a family. But we lived thousands of miles away from our family, from our community, from our friends. So we, we didn't really have anybody to invite into that joy with us, right? So what did we do? We do what all millennials do. Anyway, we just posted on Facebook, right? And that's how you invite people. We post this baby on Facebook and we invited people into the joy of that child. Personally, I think people go a little bit overboard. I think a baby announcement on Facebook suffices. And if you're not on Facebook, you should be because that's how we learn people are pregnant, right? Or you have babies. Like if you're not on social media anyway, I don't want to go into that rant. People don't call anymore. But in our passage today, we find a a baby announcement, again, not, not shared with a lot of friends, not shared with a lot of families. And in fact, the external circumstances that surrounds this announcement in Isaiah chapter nine is is pretty bad. We're gonna see words like distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. But even in the midst of that darkness, even in the midst of that gloom, there's hope, there's peace, there's this announcement. Evan last week, and we looked at the story of hope in the Christmas story. And what was going on in Isaiah and what's going on here in our passage is the beginning of the Assyrian invasion. Assyrian being a massive kingdom just north of Israel and Judah. And we saw that Isaiah has been prophesying to the kings of Judah saying, hey, you need to put your hope in God. The Assyrians are coming. Don't put your hope in them. Put your hope in God to the point where where God was begging King Ahaz. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 7. Begging King Ahaz, ask for a sign, right? Any sign. I will give you a sign that I'm a God you can trust. I'll give you a sign that you can put your hope in me, your trust in me, that I won't fail you, that I'm faithful to my word. Ask for any sign. And Ahaz rejected it right? He says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I want to put my hope in Assyria. I don't want to put my hope in the Lord. So God, even in the midst of Ahaz's faithlessness, is faithful, right? It's the story of scripture. Even in the midst of our faithlessness, God is faithful. And even though Ahaz rejects a sign, God says, I'll give you a sign anyway. I'll give you a sign to show how trustworthy I am. And what was the sign? A virgin will conceive and call his name Emmanuel. That's what we saw in Isaiah chapter 7. And we learned last week that that came true. 730 years later, an unexpected sign understood in time, Isaiah chapter 7. And that's important for us because look at the, I don't know if your, your Bible in your Bible has like little subheadings. Look at the subheading of Acts chapter 8. We see this hope, this, we see this sign in Acts chapter 7. And then chapter 8 is the coming Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians are coming. And not only are they going to come, they're going to conquer Israel and Judah, and they're going to take those people captive. They're going to enslave them and move them into Assyria. And this is going to be the future of those people. Verse 21, those people, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And when they look to the earth, behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This circumstance is brought about because they refused to hope in God. So they will be conquered. They'll be taken into, uh, into captivity, and they'll spend their days wandering around, distressed and hungry. And to make matters worse, as they're distressed, what are they going to do? They're going to blame God. They're going to look up contemptuously and say, God, I thought you were a good God. 
I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. I, th- I thought that we could hope in you. So they begin to blame God for their plight. And they're thrust into this thick darkness. So that's the context. And as they're wandering around in their captivity, probably moaning and, and groaning, much like we do, saying, what is the world coming to? Right? How many times are we going to say, what is the world coming to? Ask, what's coming into the world? That's what he says in Isaiah 9. It's, it's not a groaning. It's not a wandering around in distress and gloom. He says, look, a baby is coming. An announcement in the midst of darkness, he says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Right, so you, you see in the context here, in the midst of darkness, distress, the gloom of anguish, Isaiah says, the Prince of Peace is coming, and he's going to give you peace everlasting. So peace, that's what we're going to talk about. What, what is Peace. And I'm going to break it down two ways. We're, we're going to hone in here in Isaiah chapter 9. But we're going to answer the question, how does the Christmas story deliver peace? First thing we'll see is peace defined. Okay, let's define our terms. Because our tendency, just as we saw with hope, is to, to use words the way that we tend to in the world and then apply those definitions to Scripture, right? We should do it the other way. We should say, what does the Bible define as hope? Or how does the Bible define as peace? And then apply those to our situation. But we don't tend to do that, do we? So when we use the word peace in the world, usually we mean the absence of something negative. Think about that for a second, okay? Peace in your life is the absence of something negative. Let me give you a few common associations to, to illustrate that. I come home from work, been a long day, been a hard day, I pull into the driveway, and I just think, all I want to do right now is walk into the house and see the kids bathed with their hair parted, and they're sitting at the table. Everything's nice and calm, and I sit down with them, and we share a meal, and one of them talks at a time, right? And, and we eat our meal, but 99.9% of the time, that is not what is going to happen. I'm going to come in. It's going to be chaos. The, like the, fa- the faucet's running because they wash their hands, but they're still running. There's, there's stuff everywhere. The kids are screaming. They're all running to chase me. I'm starting to ask they're quiet. Can I just get a little bit of peace and quiet? And what we mean by that is peace is the absence of noise. Okay, peace is the absence of noise. Or maybe you think about that amazing movie, Miss Congeniality, right? Sandra Bullock, she's an FBI agent. She goes undercover as a beauty contestant pageant person. Okay, what do you call that? Pageant, she's in a pageant, okay? And then one of the judges of the pageant asked this question, what's the most important thing our society needs? And four contestants immediately start to raffle off. What, what, do, you, what do they say? World peace, world peace. We need world peace. And then we, what we mean by that is peace, the absence of war right? Peace, the absence of something. We define peace as the absence of something negative. Or let's get a little bit closer to home this week. You're hosting your extended family for Christmas. And we all have that one person in your family that you're thinking about right now going, they just like to put the fun in dysfunctional, right? And they're coming over and they're going to eat dinner. And you're thinking as we prepare for them, as we plan to host, or even going, we're taking the kids to see them. All we want for once is Christmas with a little bit of peace, the absence of conflict, right? The absence of conflict. So we define peace as the absence of something negative, but the Bible has much more to say about peace. Peace is not the absence of something negative. Biblical peace, the word shalom is what we find in our text. It's actually the presence of something positive. So it's not the absence of something negative. It's the presence of something positive is something that is not wrought externally. It's actually something brought internally 
by, some, by, the, by the, the presence of something positive. So it's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on externals. It is totally dependent on something internal. Peace is not the absence of something negative. It is the presence of something positive. And I think you know where I'm going with this. It's Jesus. Peace, true shalom, true peace is the presence of Christ in your life. Definition of shalom is, is a completeness. It's a fullness, a contentment, a, a prosperity, a, a security, even in the midst of chaotic externals. It's something you can possess because it's something that Jesus brings. In fact, this shalom, it, it was, Jesus was all about it. Okay. Luke chapter 2, his true birth announcement, again, didn't happen on social media, didn't happen with a lot of people around. An angel comes to the shepherds, who are the lowlifes of society, and, say, and, and they say this in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest. Jesus promises peace. The presence of Jesus is where peace is happening. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, uh, we, we see that he came to bring peace. It's, it's inferred in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, just stay with me. I'm going I'm to tie this to Isaiah 9. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had just been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And then we read this in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Where have we heard that before? Isaiah chapter 9. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Those people, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is the light that has dawned in the midst of thick darkness. And this is just kind of a nerdy fact, okay? Just, this is pretty exciting. Why Zebulun and Naphtali? Like, what's going on here? In Isaiah chapter 9, why are we reading about this? Because it reads in verse 1, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were the two most northern parts of the kingdom of Israel. So of the region of the kingdom of Israel, they're the most northern part, which means when the Assyrians invaded, they were the cities that were conquered first. And those people are the ones that were taken into captivity first. Jesus inaugurates his earthly ministry by starting where they had been taken into slavery. You see some symbolism there? So that he would fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. He brought peace first to those whom darkness had come first. A total restoration. He fulfills Isaiah 9. His beginning of his ministry was all about peace. And then we could quote all kinds of teachings of Jesus, right? As he expounds his ministry and as he grows his ministry, he teaches alone, a completeness. In me, you can have a fullness. In the world, you'll have tribulation, Right? Can we all agree that that's the case? In this world, there are things that create chaos and disorder. But he says, in me, you can have peace. Because take heart, I've overcome the world. John 14 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Shalom. A fullness, a, a completeness I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. So here, here's in summary. Peace is not the absence of negatives. It's the presence of Christ in the face of negatives. That's what true peace is. And let me illustrate, uh, just take it another step further. The world can, at times, offer us the absence of negatives. There are days, I said 99.9% of the time I come home and it's chaotic, okay? That 0.01% exists. Like, there are days where we can have peace and quiet. There are days when, when we may have world peace. There are some seasons in interpersonal relationships you may have no conflict. But you know what? There's always something missing, Shalom still evades us because think of the most tranquil place you can go to. For some of you, it's the beach. I hate the beach. Can't stand it. Sand drives me nuts, okay? But maybe it's the beach. You go to the beach early morning, toes in, toes in the water, 
sitting in your chair, drinking your coffee, watching the sunrise, right? Just tranquil. Just think of whatever the peaceful place for you is. I know that in that moment, you still don't have shalom. You know how I know that? Because you're still there. You're still there. You may have some peace externally, but internally, what's going on in you? There's still chaos. There's still disorder. In fact, when we get tranquil, when our externals get, get quiet, it's usually our internals start to scream even louder, right? The chaos and the disorder we carry internally get louder because we use our circumstances to busy us and distract us from what's going on deeper inside. Leaves us still in thick darkness. So we don't need the absence of some negatives. We need the presence of the positives. Let's get to the point of today's sermon. How do we get it? How do we get the peace of God? How do we get this prince of peace? First thing I want to say on that, y'all, is it is a work of God. It is not something that you can earn. It is not something that you acquire. It is a work of God. Let's hone in on verse 4. Look back with me in Isaiah 9, verse 4. It says, for the yoke of his burden. He's talking about the people of Israel here. He's talking about you and I here. For the yoke of our burden, the staff for our shoulders, the rod of our oppressors, says, you, God, God, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God is the one that breaks the burdens. God is the one that breaks the yokes. It is not something that we do. It is a work of God. When the Israelites were conquered and led into captivity, the Bible illustrates their circumstances like a yoke. You know what a yoke is? I don't don't have a yoke. The only time I've seen a yoke is at your local Cracker Barrel, right? tend to be hanging from the ceilings. You know, I don't know why, but, but, but a yoke is a, a farm instrument used. It's a wooden cross piece that's fastened over the, the necks of two animals. And then the back of that yoke is cha- attached to chains, which is attached to like a, a plow or a cart, something that is heavy. So these beasts of burden get yoked to something and they drag those burdens along with them. God often illustrates the burdens of his people with the, with the imagery of a yoke. It's the concept of a yoke. When the Israelites were, verse 11 says, Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Exodus 2, 11, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked and saw their burdens. But after God delivers them, after a work of God sets them free, we read this in Leviticus 26, 26, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and I make you stand straight. Because a yoke seated upon our neck with those heavy burdens, it pushes you down, doesn't it? Pushes you down. And God says, I break your yoke. I make you stand straight up. That's where peace is found when God breaks the yoke of your burdens off of you. It's a work of God. He breaks the yoke. But yet this yoke that that these people have, are wearing, y'all, it's, it's heavy. It's weighing them down. Now, I would guess that many of you have never worn a yoke before, right? Maybe you've never put one on. Okay, this is my trusted backpack. Been all around the world with us. Okay? Lots of hiking in this bag, but it's, but it's similar because it's designed to carry something, okay? And when you put it on your shoulders, which is where we wear our yoke, we, we wear our backpacks, okay? Now, obviously, literally, we don't see each other's backpacks, unless you carry one nonstop, okay? But you, we don't see your backpacks, but every one of us has a backpack. Can we all agree on that? And every one of us is carrying certain burdens in our backpacks, some small, some big, a lot, some few, but we all have these burdens that we carry on our backpacks. So what are some of those burdens? As I prayed through this, I just thought, what are, what are some of these burdens? What goes into this backpack? Okay, for some of us, it's circumstantial. 
Like there's some things in life that we walk through or that happen to us that are just heavy, right? That are burdens. What are some of those? Death, illness, uh, financial stress, right? They're burdens. Let me illustrate that burden by getting my five pound dumbbell here, okay? Don't judge me, okay? It's just five pounds, I know, but it'll be fine. So we got our five pound burden here. There's some circumstances in our lives that weigh us down, that burden us. For some of us, for, for all of us, some of the burdens we carry are relational, aren't they? Consistent marital conflict. Tell me that doesn't weigh you down. That's a tension that people walk through that is heavy. The political climate, who's tired of talking about that? Getting you all stressed out, thinking about it all throughout the day, stressing you out, burdening you, laying you down. For our older people in the room, is it a prodigal child? A child that you know, you've raised in the ways of the Lord, but yet as they're being overwhelmed as a parent, constantly feel like you're reacting and and you just can't get out of those cycles. Maybe it's uh, a relationship with your employer, your job, whatever it is. Don't we all carry burdens relationally? So let me illustrate that. I'm going to increase my weight here because this is all I have. We've got 15 pounds going into our bag, okay? We're carrying these relational burdens. For some though, and, and this is by far the biggest, is the burden of sin. There are consequences to sin. And when we sin, it adds burdens to our life. Let me give you a few examples. The lust for pornography that we just can't get free from, burden, heavy weight. The addiction to alcohol and drugs sits on your shoulders, pushes you closer to the ground. The greed and the discontentment in your life that has led you to take on further debt that you can't pay. So you feel like your circumstances are what burdening you, but really it was sin that drove that burden, right? Maybe it's the selfishness and entitlement that we feel that corrodes our relationship. Maybe a critical spirit, a spirit that's just void of grace, that just, that just always sees the negative in everybody and everything. That's a burdensome way to live. It's heavy carrying that on your back. Another one we don't think about, but is nonetheless more powerful, the, the sin of unforgiveness. People who have created hurt in our lives and we, we can't forgive them. So we carry that. We carry that unforgiveness on our backs, okay? So let me just go ahead and demonstrate that. So we got our bag full of burdens and, and some of us, right? It's circumstantial. It, it's, oh, I gotta put my weight back in there. It's circumstantial. It's relational. It's, it's our sin and we get our backpack and, and some of us, it's just D, you know, like all of the above. And we put this thing on and this is exactly what a yoke looks like. You put that weight on your back and it sits on your shoulders and when you walk around with it, it just pushes you to the ground. And just like the people of Israel in Acts, I mean, gosh, Acts again, Isaiah chapter eight, we wear this day in, day out. We're pushed to the ground and we blame God for it, right? The people of Israel, they're wandering around because they would not hope in God and we begin to blame God. We begin to speak contemptuously against him, which means that that unbelief, in the goodness of God, the doubt about the goodness and the kindness of God begins to create a deeper severance between us and the shalom of God, which makes it weigh even heavier, which pushes us down even further. But look at with me at the end of verse four. We have these in them as on the day of Midian. That's interesting. Anybody curious as to what he means by that? Like, what is this day of Midian? Okay, it's a reference to Judges chapter six through eight. 
Gideon was selected by God to be one of the judges of the people of Israel. So Israel, in Judges 6 through 8, um, were taken captive by the Midianites. They had been conquered by a neighbor of Midian. And God broke the yoke of their captivity by raising up a seemingly insignificant character. Y'all, read the story of Gideon. He was a coward. He came from a no-name family. He, He was a nobody. Yet God raised him up to break the yokes of his people. And how did he do it? Gideon had an army of 32,000 people. God told him to whittle that army down to how many? Anybody know? 300. 300. He took it from 32,000 to 300 for our military families in the room. Good strategy? Is that a good strategy from our officers? Probably not. 32,000 to 300, yet God raised up a nobody by the name of Gideon and then whittled his army down to 300 to break the yoke of his people, to cast off the burdens of his people. Why? Why does God do that? And he does it from cover to cover of Scripture. He does it so there would be zero question, zero doubt as to the source of their victory. God shares his glory with no other. He does things like that so that he would get all of the glory. Y'all, peace is a work of God. Shalom is a work of God. Breaking the yokes that burden his people is his work. Look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is his work. But he's going to do it as on the day of Midian. How is he doing it for us? You see, he uses something that's verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He does it with a baby. Something that's seemingly insignificant. Totally unexpected. He does it as a baby. And this baby, y'all, is not just any baby. He is king. Look at the names that that Isaiah gives him. He is wonderful counselor, which means he's supernaturally qualified with all wisdom to govern. He is mighty God, which means he is all powerful to break these yokes, to set us free. He is everlasting father. Y'all, that's not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. That's a reference to the character of Christ, which means he is motivated. He wants to set you free because of his love for you, because of his care for you, because of his concern for you. And then we read, he is prince of peace. The society, the aftermath of his rule and his reign is total shalom. And that peace, there will be no end to it. Y'all, this baby, this Christmas story breaks these yokes. But how he went about it, just like Gideon, in a very unexpected way, how he goes about this is something that we have to believe in. Because he did it not with the blood of war. He did it with the blood of a sacrifice. The blood of himself. Jot jot this down. Colossians 1 verse 20. You may want to go back and read this. Colossians 1 verse 20. How does this prince of peace take this yoke off my back? And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His death for you makes this peace possible. That that scripture, Colossians 1, 20 through 22, continues by saying, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, wandering around with your burdens on your back, blaming God, you're hostile towards God. Romans 5 says that you were enemies of God. Just like the Israelites, what do we do? We blame God. We, we blame him for the things that we're carrying. Yo, the Israelites were not victims. And neither are we. We've got to own that. For this to get off of our shoulders, we have got to come to a point where we own the fact that we're not victims. That what we are carrying is a result of our choices and a result of the sin in this world. It's a sin that has led to circumstances that weigh us down. 
Whether that's our sin or the sin of others or the sin of of just a fallen world, it is our sin that leads to broken relationships. Whether that's our sin, their sin, the sin of the world, it's our sin that has fashioned this backpack, that has fashioned this yoke that weighs us down and sits on our shoulders. Yet this Prince of Peace, as a work of God alone, has made peace for you, is willing to break this off of you by His work. He has broken our burdens. Okay, so, so let me get to the meat of this here. What Jesus has done sets you free. But yet so often, although I claim that, I still walk around just like this, don't we? We say we've been set free, but we live our lives just weighted down with these burdens. What do we do? How do we get rid of this thing? He's paid for it. Why do we keep putting it on our shoulders? I'm glad you asked. What do we do? We repent and we believe. Not just for salvation, y'all. I'm not, I'm not having an altar call. This is no evangelical sermon, okay? I'm saying every day. Us putting our faith in Christ is every day. Every day we wake up doing this right here, repenting. God, I don't want to carry this anymore. I'm turning from it. I don't want it. I don't want to carry that. That's repentance. It's turning from this old way of living. Again, unto salvation, yes, Every day of our faith in Christ, we're waking up going, God, I don't want to put this on. I don't want to carry it. And then we not only repent, we believe. We put it at the foot of the cross. We put it at the work of Jesus and say, Jesus, you take it. That's what you do. That's, yo, that's pretty easy. Just taking that off my shoulders was pretty easy. He died to make it that easy for you. It's a gift. It's not something you acquire. You don't have to work. You don't have to punish yourself with this. Are you with me? Man, so many of us, we live like, I'm just not worthy of his grace, so I'm going to punish myself by carrying it. Oh, don't live for anything short than what he died for. He died to take that. Don't pick it up again. Every day we repent by saying, Jesus, your, your shoulder is the only one strong enough to carry this. Mind it, verse 4, really quickly. That yoke, that burden, that backpack, it rests on our shoulders. But look at verse 6. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The way we get rid of this is take it off your shoulders and place it on his. His are the only ones broad enough and strong enough to carry it. It's an act of repentance and faith. And and y'all, this is what Jesus does. When you lay it at the foot of the cross, this is what Jesus does. He goes, all right, that first one, the weight of sin, that burden of sin, you know what? I paid for that. I'll take that off of you. And then he comes and he says, all oh, those broken relationships, that, that second dumbbell I put in here, all those broken relationships, you know what? I'll restore that. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says the enemies, Jews and Gentiles, says, came together because he himself is our peace. And he has broken down the wall of hostilities. Restoration in relationships is, a pos- is possible because of what Jesus has done. He goes, you know what? All those circumstances that's weighing you down and grieving you, I'll walk with you through that. I'll take that off of you. He removes our burdens. Just as he did on the day of Midian, he breaks the yoke that sits upon our shoulders. This is where shalom begins. It's the presence of Christ. It's the presence of the work of Christ, the power of Christ living within us. This is where true shalom begins. Not the absence of externals. The presence of something positive, right? And I emphasize that it begins there. Because you may be sitting there thinking, but that's not really my experience. I've trusted in Jesus, but things didn't get better. Things have just gotten harder. 
Jesus said, what? You'll have troubles. You'll have tribulations. He says, but guess what? I've overcome the world. In me, you can have peace. What Jesus offers today is the shalom inside of you that can manage your externals with peace, with the presence and the power of Christ. Without us having to pick it up and carrying it, Jesus will carry it for us. But the truth is, as we continue to live in a fallen and broken world, there are going to be some circumstances in our life that will happen that we don't have answers to that will weigh us down. There will be some relationships, again, due to the sin and the fallenness of our world, due to the sin and the fallenness of others, that no matter how you pray, no matter how much you're, you're fasting, I don't want you to give up hope, but there are going to be some relationships that may just not be restored this side of heaven. And again, sin, you may be saved, your sins are cleansed and forgiven, but you may wake up tomorrow and slip up, make a mistake, sin. Now remember, we do this every day. Jesus is a faithful high priest. When we confess our sins, he is able and just to forgive eternity. There are going to be some things trying to weigh you down. But internally, we'll still have peace. We'll still have shalom because we have allegiance to the Prince of Peace. And y'all, here's the, the best part. Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. It's just beginning. It's only going to get better. And what, that, what, what I'm trying to say is he's coming again. Y'all, he is coming again. At the advent of his coming first, he came in a manger. He came wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know what he's going to come as next? King. He's going to be sitting on a war horse in a robe of white with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he is going to make all things that are broken, he's going to restore them. He's going to make all things that were old, new. He is going to do that. And in that day, when we put our faith and our allegiance in Christ, that shalom will be in its fullness. All of that brokenness, all of those burdens will be broken upon his return. So here's my encouragement. I'm going to pray for us, but my encouragement would be to, to take off your backpack, right? Not just metaphorically. I mean, this, this is an act of faith. It is, it is taking off the backpack and, and saying, Jesus, I trust that your shoulders are big enough to carry these things. And y'all, if you're, if you're burdened, if you want to talk, just, just know we're here for you. You can fill out a connect card if you don't want to do that today. We, we'll call you tomorrow. We'll email. We'll set up a time. I don't want you to live, especially in a, a season like this, I don't want you to live with anything less than what Jesus paid for. He paid so that you may have peace. Okay? He paid that by the blood of the cross. It's ours. He is the Prince of Peace. Let me pray for us, and then our team will come back and lead us through a time of response. Father, we are so grateful for the work of Christ that backpack on, burdened, taking on the, the weight of sin, the weight of broken relationships, the weight of circumstances. You, you see us, just like the Israelites, wandering around, distressed, in that gloom of anguish, but yet you took it upon yourself to break that yoke for us. Not to say, what is, what, what is this world coming to? But once again, saying, what has come into the world? Jesus, you came into the world that we may have peace. You are the Prince of Peace. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would walk in the knowledge of that peace, the experience of that peace. So Lord, give us faith, not just in salvation, but, but in our followership of you, that we would wake up tomorrow wanting to live by faith, wanting to live by the fact that you are willing and able to carry your burdens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.